what I want more than anything is for Democrats to keep the House. And it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a lot of work, both on the coordinated and independent side and a lot of trade winds blowing in our favor to make it happen. But the thought of Nancy Pelosi having to hand the speaker's gavel over to any of those clowns is very painful to think about. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Stephanie Grasmick, who is a partner and CEO at Rising Tide Interactive, which is a democratic digital firm. That is, she runs a digital marketing agency that provides democratic campaigns and progressive organizations with a range of services, including advertising, social media, email, fundraising, video, and creative design to recruit donors and activists and mobilize audiences. Stephanie's story of her background before she came to her job and what it has taken to build one of the premier firms in the space is a good one. If you're interested in entrepreneurship in the democratic technology and campaign space, you'll want to listen. So after word from our sponsor, my interview with Stephanie Grasmick at Rising Tide Interactive. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Stephanie. Good morning. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Stephanie Grasmick. I'm a partner and CEO at Rising Tide Interactive, which is a democratic digital firm. Been there as long as we've been around, which is 10 years, um, which is kind of an eternity in, in digital time. Prior to that, I was at the DCCC when the digital team there was much smaller than it currently is. Prior to that, some corporate work in California, working in the Senate, working in campaigns in a number of challenging red states like uh, North Carolina and South Dakota. So quite a substantial career in politics at this point. I have, I have done a lot. I, I quit politics and then came back to it. So I know that I must be in the right place. Where'd you grow up? I grew up just outside of Denver in Aurora. It was at the time the sixth congressional district. I think it's the seventh now, and they're getting an eighth in the most diverse congressional district in America, counting the number and different types of immigrants and refugees. There were 27 languages spoken in my high school, which was really amazing. And then I, from there, went to school in central Missouri. And wow, was that a different experience. It's just two of the, the many... American experiences that people can have, but I was definitely unprepared to meet people who were 20 years old and had never met a Jewish person in their lives, to say nothing of, you know, people who had friends from three different African countries. I grew up in the second congressional district in Colorado, 
which if you know is Boulder and the surrounding areas typically. And I had canvassed into the Denver suburbs for like Coburg and have a sense of how diverse it was as you got into that part of the world and an interesting place politically and socially. I noticed that that your Missouri time was University of Missouri in journalism. And uh, at my firm, Graphicacy, I've hired a number of Missouri journalism people, either undergrad or, or masters, and it seems like a very strong program there. What did you think of that program in your time there? It's a really, it's a really wonderful program. And I think both in terms of being able to learn a ton from a bunch of really accomplished journalists and also the people who I have met there are now working at, you know, Axios and the Washington Post and the New York Times. And they certainly didn't graduate from college and immediately start working in those places. That's a lot of the places that they've ended up. I will also say that it's a pretty it's a pretty intense program and it's also very good at teaching you whether or not you want to be a journalist. It taught me that I very much did not want to do that, which is better to learn when you're 21 than after you've been doing it for 10 years. But a lot of the skills that we learned there are really transferable into the political space because it's all about how you communicate and communicate well and thinking about audiences. You must have been interested or gotten interested in politics because I saw that you went and worked for Dashiell and John Edwards during that time. What's the source of that interest and how did it grow? I mean, I probably just watched too much West Wing in my dorm room, if we're being honest. But I started my little baby journalism career at the student newspaper there and the the city newspaper covering politics. And it was interesting to me. And I thought that rather than writing about other people doing it, um, I'd just soon do it myself. So I, I did, you know, I worked for John Edwards, both on the research team and the field team. Um, I had the opportunity to intern for the lieutenant governor of the state of Missouri um, and spend some quality time down in Jefferson City and then went to the Dashiell campaign from there. Um, And so it was, you know, I'd always been interested in the topic. I just kind of jumped over the fence of what side I was doing it on. And did that kind of give you the bug? I think it did. After the Dashiell campaign, I haven't worked directly on any more campaigns. Um, You know, I like to have non-inflatable furniture. I like to have a little bit more stability than that. But I really, really love the time that I spent working at the D-Trip because you get to participate in all of those campaigns in a really meaningful way without necessarily having to go live in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is a lovely place, but not where I really saw my personal future. Yeah. What was next for you? I had a temp job. This was 2005 in the brand new Senate office of Senator-elect Barack Obama. I was there for a couple of months, mainly he was, he and Ken Salazar were the only two Democrats pretty much elected that year. Um, and he was definitely of the higher profile and got so much mail from after election day until March when I started. And it was just my job to go through it all and sort it. There were boxes and rooms full of stuff. And I just had to sort everything into, you know, these are issues. These are fan letters. These are like a little bit weird. And maybe we should tell somebody about them. You know, I figured, hey, this this Obama guy isn't going anywhere. So um, I went and got a full-time job somewhere else. But um, on my last day, they were going to surprise me. Um, and I was going to get my photo with the senator and um, maybe Michelle and the kids who were like little at the time. And I couldn't go because I had to work a double shift at Tortilla Coast that day. 
which is where the real money was coming from at the time. Um, so that that is my story of not having an Obama photo, but definitely having solid income from T-Coast. When you were looking at the mail that maybe someone should look look into, I mean, did you see signs of backlash about him being elected at that stage or no? I think that sort of mail was filtered out before it got to me. Um, I think it was like, it was more people who were like maybe a little bit too into the senator, you know, seeing the seeds of, you know, the fundraising work that we do now using an image or a quote from Barack Obama is still one of the most effective tactics and he's been out of office for five years or so. And I think it's just showed then what continues to be true now that people feel really connected to him in a really like deep and personal way. And that has gone from 2005 to 2021 and beyond. I feel a little bit like I know him for sure, even though I, I don't. Did you like Center for Science in the Public Interest? Yeah, that was a really challenging time to work there because it was during the Bush administration and nothing that we were pushing for was presumably ever going to happen, um, at least at the federal level. We did a lot of interesting state work and really thinking about public health and how it intersects with big food and the lobbying that happens on that side was really interesting. It wasn't a passion for me. That's why I ended up going to the Senate from there. Um, I'm not a health policy expert, but it was a really interesting deep dive into some of those particular issues that I would not have been nearly as aware of had I not been there. Yeah. A uh, year as deputy press secretary, who was it for? Uh, for Evan Bayh. Oh, and uh, kind of a legendary family out of Indiana, the Bayes. What did you think of, of that office as a place to work? It was, it was great. I was, I was there during the time I was there, which was about a year, a little bit more. Um, Democrats went from being in the minority in the Senate to being in the majority in the Senate. Um, and it was really stark how much that changed our day-to-day -day existence, being able to actually move things and set agendas and committee hearings and not just be completely reactive, made it a completely different experience than when I started and we were in the minority, really just kind of having to chase after whatever crumbs the Republican majority left out for us. Why did you leave? Um, I had what I guess we call a quarter life crisis now. Um, I, I quit my job. I sold my things. I drove my car to San Diego, um, worked at a bar and a restaurant and I got a puppy. He's here somewhere. He's um, just about to turn 15. But I took some time off of not just politics, but like professional salaried work in general. Worked at a Starbucks um, and a bar that is now closed called Downtown Johnny Brown's and enjoyed the fruits of San Diego. I spent a lot of time at Dog Beach with the puppy. And then eventually from there, there's not a lot of professional opportunity in San Diego outside of life sciences and the military. And neither of those were particularly my thing. Do you recommend that as an interlude in life? Like I, I remember after I sold my software company, I had this really strong hankering to just work jobs without responsibility that you took home at night, like to work along the Connecticut Avenue shops or something. I didn't actually do it, but I kind of fantasized about it. I might not have liked it for very long, but do you recommend that? Yes, I think it's great. And I don't think you have to have sold a software company to do it. 
I was completely solvent. I was fortunate to be doing that in California where I was able to afford health insurance on my own because of rules that they had put in place there, whereas in a lot of other states I would not have been able to. This was pre, you know, Affordable Care Act. But I think, you know, now in my role where I spend a lot of time thinking about staffing and hiring, I'm very enthusiastic about hiring people who have worked in restaurants, who have worked retail. I think it teaches you a lot of things that are outside of the regular like academic to professional job experience that makes people more adaptable, more able to see multiple perspectives than if you just walked that straight line from school to job. Yeah, I, I imagine that's true. What was next for you as you re-entered the more white collar workforce, I guess? Yeah, I moved up to LA and I um, spent a while as a temp at the company that produces proactive, like the stuff that takes care of your zits, right? And they have a whole other slew of makeup brands, mostly that are sold via infomercial. And I temped there for a while in their packaging department, worked with a very nice Iraqi man named Ned, whose whole job it was to take the packages and throw them down the stairs and like make notes on what happened so that when we ship things across the country, the bottles of lotion wouldn't explode. And then that was a temp job. It was a couple of months. It was really interesting. A lot of great free samples. Then from there, ended up um, back, I guess, in my first real digital job, because previously in politics, I'd worked on the communications side, not on digital side. And I got a job at the CIO Leadership Network, which was a very niche. It was a private social network for Fortune 1000 chief information officers. So very, very specific. But in terms of appealing to advertisers, very well thought through. These are the folks who are signing contracts in the millions and millions of dollars with Cisco and Microsoft and WebEx and all of these different companies. So it was my job to edit their columns into meaningful English, to Photoshop the shine off of their bald heads, and to get that all going. What did you take from that time, if anything, that influenced your later career in digital? I think it was a really fascinating understanding of how to connect content with an audience and what makes an audience valuable. From the outside, you would look at this stuff and say, there are only like, you know, 75 people in America who actually even care about this. Our traffic numbers were awful. It was a private site, like not even everybody could go there if they wanted to. And yet advertisers were spending huge amounts of money to get in front of this audience because it was people who had this purchasing power for large organizations. And I think that's really transferable to some of the political stuff that I do now, because we could spray a message all over creation, but if we're not getting it in front of the right people, the ones who are going to make decisions, it doesn't matter. And so it was a really interesting exercise of targeting, I guess. Also, we kept East Coast hours on the West Coast, so I learned to get up very early. A useful skill, I think, especially with small children. How did you, you make your way to the D trip from that? I was still in touch with a lot of folks from DC and um, folks who I'd worked with at Tortilla Coast, actually, and they were on my case to move back. And so, you know, I glibly told them, okay, 
find me a job and I'll move back. And then they up and did. So then I ended up at the D trip for three years and we only lost 64 seats. Hard time to be deputy new media director, huh? It was, you know, 2010 was a very tough cycle. Um, there were tough cycles before that. And since we may be heading into another one, but it was in terms of where we were at for digital media at the time, a really amazing time to be there. Why? We were just starting to think about like what it could be. Um, you know, we sent we sent emails and they were starting to actually raise some real money. And I sort of sold them on the idea of maybe we should do some list growth. Maybe we should run some Facebook ads. Um, and at the time, Facebook ads were these little postage stamp things in the right-hand column. I have a printout of some of them just to remember them, but they were not the ad unit that you have now. But it was very, very useful just looking at, uh, we can like target people who like Rachel Maddow. We can target people who like the Sierra Club and think that those people are going to be like our people and get them to sign up. And it was it was a lot of testing, a lot of a lot of stuff that worked great, a lot of stuff that didn't work great. And we had a lot of freedom to try new stuff because there was so much stuff that hadn't been tried. Who managed you there? There I worked for Taryn Rosencrantz, who is um, the owner of New Blue Interactive. I asked because I'm curious about your experience being managed in that job since you are now the CEO of, of the firm you work at. One can learn from both positive and negative aspects of how you were managed and try to set yourself up to be different or copy things that work. What, what was your sense of what you got there from Taryn? I think Taryn was a great manager. She achieved a really good balance between making sure we all hit our goals and being open to having us find ways to get to them that weren't the ways that she would have done it. And I think especially at a time when digital was very new, that was really important for the committee. I think we had some different experiences based on who was the executive director at the time and how they managed the digital department and thinking about it either as something ancillary to finance or something, you know, I think we we went through a period where we were really under a lot of pressure to raise money in the short term. And it came at the expense of long-term list health, which wasn't something that people totally understood at, in 2010. And so we would need to push back a little bit and say, you know, we can raise X this month, but that will come at the expense of a much greater number Y in September, because we'll have turned off a whole bunch of folks. And we didn't have a decade of data to back that up yet. Those are challenging conversations to have. Whereas now I think a lot of folks are much more conversant in how this works. And we, even when they're not, we have a lot of data to back up why we want to do things the way we want to do them. The issue of sort of turning people off on lists and just sort of ethical emailing in general remains central to some of the discussions about the digital world of fundraising and beyond. Do you have any thoughts about it? Has your view kind of grown over time and where are you now on that? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly as it relates to email volume, I think there's a lot of 
hand-wringing about how much is too much that you don't necessarily hear when every ad is a political ad on TV leading up to an election. Like, are we going to ruin TV? Like, that's not something people ever really say. Although really one wonders on TV whether it, there isn't diminishing returns. Well, for sure. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, there's there's a difference between being aggressive and being deceptive. And I think that is an important line to be really aware of. If folks can always unsubscribe and we're just pushing hard, I think it's our job to push hard. Our opponents are pushing hard and we're going to need those resources to fight back when it comes to crunch time. But I don't think that gives anyone a license to be deceptive or to trick anybody. Yeah. What about the whole question of emailing to people who haven't opted in and where is it spam and where is that not a good idea? I'm not sure I have any specific thoughts on that. Fair enough. Tell me how you landed at Rising Tide. What's the founding story there? Yeah. Um, I When Rising Tide was just a very teeny little firm, I started working with them when I was at the D-Trip and uh, asked them if I could come over as partner. And they said I could. It's a shorter story than one might imagine, but I had I had been at the D-Trip a little while. The folks sort of above me didn't appear to be going anywhere. So if the people above you don't move up or move out, then you're a little bit limited in how much you can grow after a certain point in time. So it wasn't, you know, a negative reaction to anything there. And I did kind of want to do another cycle where maybe we would win some seats. But it was a really amazing opportunity to get in really at ground level doing some of the fundraising work that I was more familiar with, but also a lot of the digital persuasion work that was just sort of becoming a more relevant part of campaigning and that I was interested in even more. And I interviewed very early in this podcast, Eli Kaplan, Mm -hmm. and got a little bit of the story from his perspective. Where was the firm when you joined? How much had happened already? Um, It was about six months in. And I think we had like three clients. I think one of them was NGP Van and one of them was maybe Mark Warner and maybe like the DLCC. And shortly after I came on board, we signed on with Joe Donnelly's long shot Senate campaign. And that was something that I worked on from the beginning um, all the way through Richard Murdoch winning the primary and then kind of torpedoing himself in a debate and then all the way through 2018 when Senator Donnelly lost. That was sort of a return to the Hoosier state for me after working for, for Evan Bayh in the Senate. I've never, well, I have been to Indiana, but not much considering how much I have worked on all things Indiana related in my career. Yeah. How has the firm changed as it's grown from three clients to what do you have now and how many people working for you? 50, maybe. Um, 50 people or 50 clients? 50 people, but maybe also 50 clients. Yeah. Depends on the day. I mean, there was a time when I was doing graphic design and rising tide, and those were dark times. Nobody wants to go back to that. That's not your biggest strength, huh? It's not. Um, Although Eli used to design ads too, and mine were definitely better than his. Yeah. But... (laughs) It's it's just such a different experience that, you know, I've had the same job title at the same organization for 10 years, but I have not had the same job for 10 years. Working at a small, small company where I was doing everything all the way up to now managing 
a whole bunch of different projects, it just becomes radically different, both organizationally and in terms of digital evolving at the same time. It's not as though we, you know, started a mail firm 10 years ago and we have been evolving while the medium has stayed the same. So we are having to grow in a lot of directions at once. It sounds like it would be a pretty interesting place if it's in an area that you care about, plus it's changing internally and externally. Is that right? Yeah, it is. We've had a couple of folks now who have worked at Rising Tide for a couple of years, gone off, worked on campaigns, worked at other firms, and then come back. They feel like it's not like they're going back to something they've already done. It feels like a growth trajectory for them too. And I think that's because we are always looking to do more and do better. We do a lot of randomized control trials for voter registration and GOTV and persuasion and different things. Um, And there's so much learning going on all the time that it just makes it a really fascinating place to be. What do people really hire you for? Digital, it's not a static or focused thing always. What, what, What is the main thing that a campaign or, I don't know, progressive organization is looking for when they sign up with you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because digital is digital is a tactic. It's not an outcome. Um, but what people hire firms for is specific outcomes. And I think those are fundraising, either doing the fundraising directly or building lists. And then on the flip side is the persuasion, mobilization, voter registration work that is much more broad-based and trickier to measure. Fundraising and direct response could feel like a very safe place to be because you're constantly getting hard numbers feedback about how you're doing. If I send out a fundraising email, I can see how many people sort of see now how many people opened it, how many people clicked on it, how much it raised. If I run some ads and bring a bunch of names onto a list, then I can see how much those folks have donated over time and whether I should continue with that strategy or do something else. On the persuasion side, it's much harder to measure. And I think a lot of campaign managers and executive directors have gotten very comfortable with the amount of feedback loops they have on the direct response side in digital and get frustrated that that is not available to them on the persuasion side and become less trusting of digital persuasion than they are of TV and a mail because they have gotten sort of a taste of those metrics on the fundraising side. And so we have worked on a lot of strategies to do some of that measurement. Sometimes it can be intensive, it can be expensive. Not everybody has the runway to do it if you're counting every single vote. But I think that is an interesting challenge of that type of work to give people as much concrete data as they're looking for without giving them things that are not maybe actually relevant. Over the time that I've paid attention to politics, the battle between Republicans and Democrats has always been very intense and very important. And election nights have always like really felt good or bad or somewhere in between. But there's something different, I think, in the Trump era for me. There's something that has really gone awry in the other party that scares me on a far different level 
about them being in power. And I know I'm not the only person who feels that way. And I know the other side feels that way to some degree too. Does that affect your work? Does that affect how you go about trying to help or is, or is it basically still regular politics from the practitioner point of view? No, I think, I think it is different. I think what you are sensing is something that a lot of people are feeling. I think it's sort of a popular thing to say among like the cynical political class that like there are no persuadable voters left. And I don't think that's actually true. I think what is true is that voters are better than ever at just completely tuning out anything that looks and feels like a political ad. So like the minute you come at them with this like red, white, and blue color palette and like that one concerned older woman narrator that everybody uses, they just, their brains click off and they tune it right out. And so what we have to do is we have to adapt. We did this like in Wisconsin in 2020. We did a lot of work filming and testing different direct-to-camera spots of working Wisconsinites talking about the harm that the Trump administration was inflicting on their communities and measuring the efficacy of those and found that we were really able to break through and decrease support for Donald Trump's economic agenda because it didn't feel like a political ad. It didn't feel like a political message. And people who you know, will tell you at a barbecue, like, oh, I don't talk politics. It was still something that spoke to them. And because it was 2020, all of it was shot remotely so that we didn't all give each other COVID. And that ended up being kind of a blessing in a way because we ended up with way more voices and sort of a way less produced, more authentic feeling message than if we just had like a couple of people at a film shoot. And so I think there's this like cynicism that's becoming more built into more of the electorate that if you create a political ad that feels like a political ad, like people aren't buying it. Does it make it harder to have impact for a particular campaign when the big partisan tides are so strong and the polarization is so fierce? I think it just makes targeting a lot more important. I think there used to be, or at least my perception is that there used to be this like big, wide, persuadable middle that was open to going with either side because either side sounded at least like they believed in democratic government, if nothing else. And so you could pretty broadly target your persuasive messaging and expect to move the needle. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Politics and particularly Republican politics has gone to such extremes that there's a whole distressingly large section of the electorate that is just like not on the table anymore. And so finding ways to target those folks who are persuadable is, it's a much trickier proposition than it was 20 or 30 years ago. When I talked to Eli, he mentioned he was a founding partner in two firms at the same time, DS Political, the ad side, and then your firm, more of the consulting or strategic advice side. To what extent are you involved in the DS Political or have been, or do you guys use them as a, a vendor? Or how, what's the relationship there? Yeah, we do use them as a vendor. And when we were um, 
in a physical office space. We shared office space with them. But outside of that, we include a lot of vendors in our media plans, of which DS Political is sometimes one. They are very much on the one-to-one deterministic matching side, which is maybe falling a little bit out of favor in some political circles. I think there's still very much a place for it. And the death of the cookie has perhaps been drastically overstated. But I think there are more premium options than there ever were before. So I would say we are probably working with DS Political less than we have in the past, just because of the amount of premium video and CTV inventory that's out there. There's going to have to be some people who don't understand what you said by the death of the cookie and (laughs) what what its relevance is to political advertising. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of Apple's the one that's the most talked about, but there are a lot of tech platforms that are really limiting the ways that advertisers can track users across the Internet using cookies and device IDs, which is the technology that we've previously relied on to match people from a list, say, from the voter file and match them up and serve them ads directly online. I think Google is phasing out third-party cookies in Chrome. Um, they were going to do that last year. Now it's 2023, but it's it's all coming. And there are folks out there who will say that as this cookie technology, device ID technology is being phased out, that means that we cannot target voters with the specificity that we could before. And that's not necessarily true. We still have a lot of options for targeting voters on what's called a deterministic basis that we're using right now, like today, like matching social profiles, IP addresses, latitude, longitude. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that are coming online in the next couple of years from folks like LiveRamp and TradeDesk to be able to continue to do this sort of targeting. So it's very much a tool that we're still going to have in our toolbox, cookies or no cookies. That being said, individual level voter file targeting is definitely not the whole game. It's a great option for delivering a really tailored message that isn't going to maybe appeal to the broader electorate or for targeting mobilization ads where you don't want to necessarily turn everybody out. It's also a great way for smaller campaigns to be really effective, but it also really has limitations that I think people are just starting to talk about a little bit more. I've heard people in the commercial who come out of the commercial space who have said that they thought the whole idea of targeting that way to a voter file didn't make sense to them at all. That's not what they do. They, you know, do affinity groups or something like that. Does that critique ring true to you at all? Yes and no. If you're out there selling Coca-Cola, pretty much anybody is eligible to buy a Coke. And everybody at least baseline drinks beverages. So targeting a pretty wide audience makes a ton of sense. Well, I think they're talking more about targeting based, you know, still targeting, but basing it on interests like you might be able to find on Facebook or other platforms where you know more about people. So I think they're thinking of voter file targeting as the broad based, you know, like hit a lot of people or demographically based or something like that um, versus what they do. I think you're 
right on that thinking of voter file targeting as a broad-based strategy is definitely not it. There are only a certain number of people who are going to be on the file, and then from there, only a certain number of people who are going to be able to match, and from there, a certain number of people who are going to be able to serve. And once you've pared all of that down, you're just not talking to a whole lot of people. Um, and so it's it's a very rare case where voter file targeting can stand on its own. It used to be the case a couple of cycles ago that you could get decent scale against voter file targeting where you couldn't on something like connected TV inventory or streaming radio. That has changed so much in the past couple of cycles just based on how people are using media that now we, we can run as much CTV as we want to. And often that is a better choice. But a couple of cycles ago, it really wasn't. I'm really interested in your thoughts about running this company, like you, uh, managing 45 people and setting direction and all the responsibilities of CEO are, are that's significant. What, what are your theories that have come to you over time about how to do this well? A stage that we're very much in right now is really intentionally reevaluating processes that have sort of grown up organically that maybe served us super well when we had two departments and like 20 people that are now at, you know, four to five departments and 50 people not meeting everybody's needs. Related to that is, I think, when you're a small group, there are a lot of sort of baseline things that we all, that I know that you know, and you know that I know, and we all are working from the same playbook. And there's a lot that doesn't need to be said. And I think that leads to an environment that's it's like a sneaky way of your company not being as inclusive as it could be. Because if everything is based on unwritten assumptions and like hidden agreed upon rules, then anybody who comes from a background where they don't know that secret playbook isn't going to succeed. And so while it may seem like just more pain in the ass bureaucracy to write everything down and have policies and level set to the point of, you know, making everyone fear me showing up on the Zoom again. I think it actually is an act of inclusion because then we are stating expressly, here's what we believe, here's what we do, here's why we do things the way that we do them so that everybody can have access to that, like, base level of knowledge versus just hiring people who we think like get it. To, to what degree are you transparent about finances and evaluations and things like that? I've always uh, struggled with what, what is appropriate in a privately held company to share with employees or beyond. How do you think about that? Yeah. Trends have really changed in that department in the last not so many years. We have moved toward things like having transparent salary bands. Every job we post has the, the salary band posted along with it. Really incorporating giving and receiving feedback in both structured and unstructured ways, including we, we actually are doing uh, partner reviews right now. We work with an outside consultant so that nobody has to feel like they're talking trash to somebody who's going to report it up to their boss. But um, doing that on both an in-person and an anonymous level so that we as partners can get feedback 
and that we can incorporate. And I think that's just part of those structures of transparency so that everybody can be working from the same playbook and sort of leveling the playing field there. Do you think running a business in the political space is much different than running a business outside? I do. Not a week goes by that I tell somebody, I don't know why it's lawnmowers, but I always tell people, I wish I worked at a company that just sold lawnmowers because like 50% of our clients go away every two years and we have to go out and find new ones. And so it's incredibly difficult to project revenue, hiring needs. When this was a thing, office space, how much we can invest in technology, how much we can invest in all of these different things, because we know like at this point, we have a few few cycles. We have five cycles of data in our pocket, but all of our clients go away and we have to go find new ones and don't know what that's going to look like every two years. And it's just really challenging. I buy and don't buy that just thinking about it. Like, no joke, I just read a history of lawnmowers and their development. And it's complicated and there's patents and there's companies being born and dying and merging and manufacturing. And like one of the things I've learned about business is we all got our challenges. Like I really felt like in the political space, God, I have to deal with politics. I have to deal with technology. The, th the things are moving very quickly. And, and I still think I, I would hold with you like in the long run on that opinion. But I think, you know, running a business can be complicated in lots of different arenas, some more so than others, and certainly at different times in different spaces before maybe they rationalize. Have you ever joined like a forum for other entrepreneurs or like done anything to supplement being a CEO with a peer group? I haven't. I think I would love to. I've been like, I don't know if you know that children's book where the little duck keeps going around like asking, are you my mother? But I feel like I'm kind of in that place with looking for a mentor. Is that ping? There's one duck that gets lost on the on the Yangtze River that I read as a little kid. I don't know if that's the one. But. It's a, I, think, I think we're talking about two different ducks. But um, okay. this is a duck who goes around asking all the different animals, like, are you my mother? Are you my mother? I feel like I'm doing that, but like with, my, with mentors. And <laughs> it's very hard to find um, a mentor when you're in an executive type position. And I don't think there are a ton of resources for that. Um, I think the ones I found all are like secretly MLMs. So maybe I'm just not looking in the right place. Yeah. Well, I, I know that for me, getting into entrepreneurial forum at a certain stage of my company was a helpful thing. And I've stayed with that for, you know, a long time, actually, a decade and a half or more. Yeah, I will say that I don't think we ever set out to create a 50 person company. That wasn't like, it just happened. Yeah. Like I became an entrepreneur in spite of myself. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people do. When you do strategic thinking about the company, where do you envision it going or where are you trying to push it to, to go over the next five years or more? One of the things I want to think a lot about in the coming cycle is how we invest more strategically in either technology or partnerships with like analytics firms to automate some of the things that we do very manually now. A lot of our work, particularly on the direct response side, is just aggregating data from a number of sources. We have, you know, ActBlue data coming in over here and then data from NGP coming in over here and Facebook coming in over here. And we have to put them all together so we can say, 
this ad signed up this many people who gave this many dollars. And finding a way to make that not a manual process has been really challenging. That was like micro. My macro answer is that I really want to have our firm and you know other digital firms be seen much more as like strategic partners to campaigns in the way that I think TV consultants are. Um, and you know we do a lot of talking about the big kids table. I think we're all at the big kids table now, but I think there is still a generation of GCs and campaign managers that will ask strategic questions of their TV consultant that they will not of their digital consultant. And I think that is changing just as folks who have come up with robust digital programs being part of campaigns move into those more senior roles. Why haven't TV and digital merged in the consulting world more than they have? I think some folks have tried. I don't think it's been done well yet because right now you're either natively a TV firm who wants to do digital or you're natively a digital firm who wants to do TV. And it's hard to get away from the perspective of the medium that you started with, that you specialize in. And I don't think anyone has done that well. I think in theory, a firm that can do paid communication and do all of it well would be incredibly valuable. What I have seen come from TV firms that quote unquote do digital is much more limited. They think of it as more analogous to TV buying, you call buying time, they buy you some stuff and like you're good and it's just not like that. And trying to like put it into that mold has not served anybody well. Do you think uh, it's significantly different being a female leader at this firm than it would be if you were male? Um, I think probably, yeah. Um, I you know, have a lot of keen memories of a great number of people who refer to Eli as my boss. What is Eli now? What's, what is he, if just partner or mm -hmm. what? Yeah. Was he CEO until you took that title or? We didn't really have a CEO. And eventually that was one of the things where it was like, oh, this company is big enough. Somebody needs to like maybe run it. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's more, it doesn't come from the inside. I think I'm empowered to do everything that I need to do. And I think I'm able to do it. But I think there are assumptions of other folks, both. Honestly, more when I'm acting in a strategic capacity as a digital consultant than when I'm acting as a business leader that I don't think on these, you know, old dude consultant calls that my voice is given the weight that uh, a male voice might be given. That's annoying. What do you think the characteristics that you have made you the right choice for CEO? Um, I love process. I love it. It goes back to what we were talking about with like waiting tables. I think I have a really diverse set of experiences. I've worked a lot of places and done a lot of jobs and lived in a lot of environments. And I think that has enabled me to see a given situation from a number of perspectives pretty easily. So I can say like, oh, well, you know, this policy would obviously be best from, you know, this perspective, but it's really going to freak these other people out. Like I can already see that coming a mile away and it saves a lot of 
pain down the road to be able to see those things. What, what have I not asked you that I should have? That is a great question. You should have asked me about the, we did our own original research this summer, which is the first time we've ever done that. Um, oh yeah. Tell me about that. Um, we did a, a voters and media survey with our friends at Hit Strategies who are wonderful. And, you know, I think there's a lot of hand-wringing and energy on the left about messaging. And I think that's important. What messages we should be using as Democrats, how we should be talking about things, and almost none on where our voters are consuming media in the first place. And you can have, you know, the absolute best, most perfect, correct message. And if it's not getting to the right people, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. So then on the flip side, there's a lot of data out there about where Americans writ large are consuming media. Um, but there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between Americans and persuadable voters. So we took a sample from the voter file of persuadable voters, I think 600 interviews across 12 swing states, and talked to them about where they're getting information, where they are watching media, are they streaming, do they have cable, are they listening to streaming radio, do they watch YouTube, this whole slew of questions. And then we went to another group of 400 voters in those same states who voted for the first time in 2020 and asked them the same set of questions. And we're able to compare differences, but also a lot of similarities between those two groups. Are there particular things that you'd want people to know about what you found beyond that? Um, I think the main thing that jumped out at me was just how middle-aged the internet is. Um, I think we get stuck in this place of thinking of it as, uh, you know, if you're going to reach 18 to 24 year olds, you're going to do it on the internet. And then after that, we're going to go somewhere else. And really, you don't see people who prefer linear channels to digital channels until you get somewhere between 55 and 65 years old. So anything in 30s, 40s, most of 50s are people who are streaming dominant, phone first voters. And I don't think we really expected to see those middle to upper age ranges give us the answers that they gave. World has changed and rapidly. How do you view the competitive landscape for your firm? Like how fierce is it? Who do you generally get up against? What is your part of the space? It's a very interesting like Rubik's cube of a competitive analysis because we do both the fundraising work and the persuasion work. And so there are folks who have much bigger fundraising operations than us. There are folks who are much cheaper on the fundraising side than us. There are people with long track records or people with short track records. And then over on the persuasion side, there is really a, like there's everything from firms that are like purportedly political, but mainly do corporate work and are able to show up to a pitch with, you know, a team of 50 all the way down to a couple of firms every cycle who have just like spun off of a particular campaign and they're brand new and they have great connections, but they've never done this as a firm before. Where we try to fall is at the nexus of innovation and experience. So we're still purely political. We're still in that world. We're not corporate marketers. We're still testing things and working with campaigns and trying to do it in a new, different, better way. 
but we've also done it for enough cycles that we know where the pain points are in September and October, even when it comes down to things like invoicing and keeping track of money and what happens if my graphic designer quits, like all of these different things that have we've learned along the way that make for like a more stable situation. Do you think that it is easy to differentiate when you are pitching? I think our challenge is that our explanation of why we're different is like 12 sentences long and you usually lose people before that. So what we really, I think what distills it the best is just talking about our history of how many races we have won. Um, I think the last time we counted it up, it was like 17 Senate races and 15 gubernatorial, give or take. And that is like a something that's more tangible that all of that other stuff that I can talk about goes into. But at the end of the day, people, people want to win. Experience. Is there a race this upcoming cycle, 2022, that would be the prize to carry that? Oh man, that's a really good question. Um, we're actually doing a lot less candidate work this cycle than we have been. What I want more than anything is for Democrats to keep the House. And it's going to be really hard and it's going to take a lot of work, both on the coordinated and independent side and a lot of trade winds blowing in our favor to make it happen. But the thought of Nancy Pelosi having to hand the speaker's gavel over to any of those clowns is very painful to think about. Yeah, it really has all the feeling of almost a foregone conclusion right now, unless something in those trade winds in the economy and COVID and and just the being the in party uh, in a in a complicated time, boy, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty worried, and I certainly would love to just hang on to at least one the House or the Senate, just please. It's really great to talk to you. I hadn't had a chance to spend an hour with you. I did spend an hour with your husband on this show a while ago, and he's in a related space, how did you guys get together? Um, we we met at a house party celebrating the passage of healthcare reform. And, you know, the rest is history. So Obamacare brought us together. Well, I guess that's DC romance for you. Well, I'm glad to have completed the family a little bit until a kid of yours reaches this stage. So. I've got a very talkative five-year-old. She'll come on anytime. Yeah. Okay. Well, that may make sense. Anyway, thanks for coming on. Uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I think that's all. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. That was Stephanie Grasmick. Stephanie's at risingtideinteractive.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.